the mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as kalesas or the torments that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces to the mind known as the torments that we suffer. <clears throat> torments conveys the meaning of the word kalesas uh, quite accurately because kalesas in the Pali language are torments. So we can call these visitors to the mind that which torment us or cause us to suffer. So reflect today, reflect on the day and the kinds of unsatisfactoriness that you experienced. Pain in the body, pain in the heart, frustration, self-judgment, sleepiness, anxiety, frustration, whatever. And those are the little ones. <laughs> that kind of experience is caused by a visitor to the mind. It's not who you are, it's not how you are, it's not your inherent nature to be, you know, impatient or angry or, you know, needy or greedy or depressed. It's just a visitor to the mind, just a visitor to the mind. So if we can hear what the Buddha said and believe it, we might inquire, well, if that is so, how should we understand these torments? What is the right view to have of these torments? How do we become aware of them? And how do we um, get a handle on them, to use conventional language? Because as Saira Utejaniya acknowledges, it's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. Okay, so, well, what, what are these torments anyway? What, what is the right way of understanding these torments? The Buddha calls them visitors to the mind, and uh, Utejaniya acknowledges that, well, we can't get rid of them, but wisdom can. So we should understand them as those habitual, reactive um, states of mind, uh, strategies for dealing with unpleasant or pleasant experiences that we've cultivated over the course of years, decades, lifetimes maybe, in ways that kind of act out our beliefs, assumptions, uh, thoughts, moods, emotions, trying to get what we want or to get away from what we don't want. <clears throat> the interesting thing about these torments is that they're all rooted in ignorance or delusion. And I make a subtle distinction between those two English words. Ignorance is when, and we've all experienced this today, the mind wanders away into thought. We're not aware of it. And as I acknowledged the other day, when we're lost in thought like that, we don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know when we started. We don't know how long we've been thinking. We don't know where the thinking's going. We don't know whether we like what we're thinking. We don't know our posture. We don't know our age, our name, our gender. We don't know if we're in a room or outside. We don't know any, we, we don't know anything. And this is when we're trying to be mindful. Just think if we weren't trying to be mindful. Okay, so, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of embarrassing, actually, you know, to, to, to realize, oh my goodness. Anyway, we don't know anything. We're, we're totally ignorant. And only remembering to recognize the present moment mindfulness is going to get us out of that trap. Okay. We could say that that kind of ignorance obscures the object, meaning we don't see the present moment. We don't see the present moment's experience. We don't see an object. We don't, we don't see anything. 
delusion, I differentiate by saying, well, delusion is the filter over the mind that causes us to attribute significance or meaning or purpose to something that it doesn't inherently have. And so we would say that delusion obscures the nature of the object. We see the object, but we don't understand it correctly. So when attachment arises in the mind, and we look at whatever we look at, we only see the pleasant aspects of it. This is the nature of attachment. That's what attachment does to the mind. It causes the mind to see only the pleasant aspect of what it's looking at. On the other hand, when aversion arises in the mind, well, when aversion visits the mind, it's just a visitor, remember, uh, it causes the mind to see only the unpleasant characteristic or aspect of what it's looking at. This is its nature. So we could say that, well, we're living in delusion. We misunderstand. We don't see the whole picture. We're, we're looking at it, we see it, but we've attributed some kind of significance to it or value to it that it doesn't inherently have. So think of something that you wanted, fell in love with, desired, worked hard to get because it was going to make you happy. And, you know, that's why we get those things. And then you get it. And how long do you stay happy? Well, until you get the first scratch on the car, until, until you, something breaks and you've got to send it back for repair, or until it gets recalled to the factory. And we didn't see those unpleasant possibilities of everything. Everything has its unpleasant characteristic. So we are confused. We're deluded by this state of mind, this visitor to the mind. So they're always rooted in ignorance or delusion. They're also always fueled by restlessness. Now, restlessness in this application, or in the way that restlessness is uh, understood here, is that it is the mind that is just wandering around in thought. It's just thinking. And we may be kind of aware of it, and we may be completely unaware of it. But nevertheless, it is wandering around kind of aimlessly. It doesn't have any purpose. We're not intending to think this way, but the mind is just thinking this way. And we kind of may be vaguely aware of it, or we may be really fascinated by it. But it is usually, almost always, about us. It's a narrative about my life. And we don't see what's actually going on. It's just kind of, we don't know where it's going and we don't know what we're thinking. But we arrive at these, well, understandings or misunderstandings because of, well, carelessness. So, are you familiar with any visitors to your mind? <laughs> just, just to be clear. We, we're visited by them, well, not all the time, but a lot of the time. Or in fact, any time that we're not mindfully aware the mind is being visited by one of these forces and we're off in some confused and deluded state. But normally, we don't see these visitors. Let's say they have arisen so frequently in our life, throughout our life, that they've kind of become a habit. They, they kind of think they own the place, even though they're just a visitor. And, you know, because they have arisen so often and we've just kind of accepted them, we we don't even pay much attention to them a lot of the times. If we're really bothered by them, if they're really making us suffer, then we pay attention. But the rest of the time we're just kind of whingy, whiny, you know, kind of complaining about stuff in our life. And we just live with it because, well, we don't know that there's any other option. And because they're so, they arise so frequently or they visit the mind so frequently, we have assumed that they're kind of like always there. It's like a visitor who just 
silently moves into the spare room. You know, they're always there. They're just, they're just waiting to come out for lunch and, you know, things like that. And so, and so we take a momentary appearance of one of these visitors, you know, say, you know, you're fearful. Fear arises, you know, due to causes and conditions, and it's appropriate to feel fear. That's, that's a normal effect of given causes. And when we feel fear, we, know, we, we notice it. We, we, we kind of act it out. We run away. We do whatever we got to do to take care of the fear, or try to. And it has arisen so often that we, we can think, geez, I'm always fearful. You know, that's, my, that's one of my strategies for dealing with, well, unpleasant experience. And then we often, when we, because it has arisen so frequently, we, we assume that it's, that it's my fear. You know, this is my, you know, depression. This is my anger. And when we uh, appropriate it as mine, we then get identified with it. Not only do we eternalize it saying, I'm always like this, and it's mine, appropriating it, we identify with it and we say, I'm an angry person. I'm a depressed person. And that's because, you know, the experience has arisen frequently. We've identified with it. We've owned it. We've kind of reified it into, this is, this is a personality. This is my personality. Once that belief gets in the mind, I'm a depressed person. I'm an angry person. I'm a needy person, whatever it is it's almost impossible to get out. Almost impossible to get out. Because it's now a thought. It's a belief. It's an unexamined assumption in the, in the mind. It's not just a momentary occurrence that we're dealing with. Not just a visitor that we're dealing with. They bought the mortgage. They own the place. <laughs> mm. Okay. Now, the, the thing about these uh, visitors to the mind is that if they just visited and laughed, that'd be okay. But they don't. They obstruct our life. They really prevent us from living the fullness of our life. Just reflect a little bit on how often, out of fear, you have decided not to do something that you might really like to have done. You don't go into certain social situations because social anxiety. You might not take a job because ooh, you might not be quite up to the task. Or you might have to do something you fear doing. Public speaking, for example. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> Okay, so we can see that because we kind of entertain these visitors to the mind when they arise, we just, we just don't go there in our life. We don't go to some of, the place, some of the terrain that is possible to experience as a human being. And as we go through life, year after year, the, the range of what we are comfortable with gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we live in, this na- in the narrow confines of what we feel totally safe. And that's not that safe either but totally safe in, when it's fear. Or, you know, it can be depression, it can be frustration, it can be, you know, desire or whatever. It, they're all visitors to the mind that exert this limiting effect on the heart. And when they do that, they also prevent us or hinder us in our practice. When doubt arises in our practice, for example, doubt, I mean, we don't think of doubt as big suffering, I mean, but think of the, the anxiety that doubt has caused you in your life. Because you don't know, should I do this, should I do that? You know, doubt is characterized as a traveler in a foreign land comes to an intersection with no road signs or no directional signs. And you're facing left, right? And you have no way of determining what to do. You know what that feeling's like. Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't know. There's good reasons for going this way, and there's good reasons for going that way, and we don't know. And so we're paralyzed with doubt. You can think all you want about, yeah, well, that road's kind of neater. That one's a little rough. But that one looks straight, and there's trees over there, and there's a 
And yet all that thinking about it doesn't offer you solace for the doubt. And so you're paralyzed. Reflect again on the times in your life that you've been stuck, unable to make a decision, not seeing a clear direction forward in your life. That's suffering. Just a visitor. But it has had the effect of really hindering your life and your practice. So we could say that these torments, these visitors to the mind, they enchant the mind. They cast a spell over the mind of dreamlike images where we, we have these uh, kind of, we're under the influence of this intoxicating visitor. And it's like, a, as Upandita characterized it, it's a living, breathing, long-running, hallucinative, hallucinatory narrative of our life. That's suffering. It entangles the mind in all the suffering that you've ever experienced. But mindful awareness is like a searchlight casting for faults in the clouds of this delusion. Seeing the gap, seeing the places where we can kind of see through the illusion, see through the delusion. These torments, these visitors, they're all dharma. Every time you experience it, that's a dharma. Because they arise due to causes and conditions. They're not a mistake. They're not, un, not, they're not that they're not supposed to happen. They arise because conditions are there. So they arise. They're a natural phenomena. But rather than seeing them as an obstacle to our practice, we should actually consider them an opportunity. Because mindfulness can be aware of them. Mindfulness can learn to recognize them. And if we can recognize them, or if mindfulness can recognize them, and observe them, and be with them, it can learn about them, and insight can free us from their grip. So, while we may have made mistakes because of these visitors, we've, we've made some foolish decisions, we've acted carelessly, we've hurt ourselves, we've hurt others, we've made mistakes, actually those mistakes are the stepping stones to wisdom if you use mindful awareness to see what was going on. So we should understand that these torments are visitors to the mind. They are mental phenomena, although they, and they're unwholesome, meaning they, they lead to suffering. But they condition results because they're uh, unwholesome mental states. When we think about them, when we speak about them, or when we act under their influence, the result will surely be unpleasant. It's unpleasant physically in the experience of pain, anxiety, stress, uh, and other unpleasant physical experiences. But we should also understand that not everything we feel in the body is due to unwholesome karma. Sometimes it's due to the weather. Sometimes it's due to the food you eat. Sometimes it's due to genetics. So we don't want to interpret every sensation in the body as a mental state. So these torments, when acted on, condition unpleasant effects in the body and also in the mind with a sense of disagreeableness, tension, stress, regret, reactivity, remorse, guilt. These are the unpleasant feelings that come from blindly acting out these visitors to the mind. When unrecognized and un not understood, these visitors only become more permanent residents. <laughs> they get stronger, you know. <clears throat> so we should we should look at how it is that we work with, recognize, deal with. What can we do about these visitors to the mind? Because the second task of the yogi, as Alexis mentioned the other night is to, after hearing right view, and I've just shared some right views of these torments with you, then the task is to be aware. 
to cultivate wise attention, to be aware of these visitors to the mind. And to do that, we need this kind of information. We need to uh, recognize what these torments are, the danger of these torments. We need to begin to see them in order to begin to see them in our experience. Now, most of you who've been on a retreat before have heard of the five hindrances. Attachment, aversion, sloth, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. That's the first five. They're the big five that most hinder our practice. But there's more. (laughs) You know, in in one book that I recently read, over a thousand have been identified. So let's just deal with the big five, okay? Uh, But there is wrong view, there's pride, there's arrogance, there's disdain, there's self-pity, in addition to the five hindrances, okay? So I want to um, suggest... And tonight I want to talk about not necessarily a, a way to get rid of these defilements, these torments, these visitors to the mind, but a way to understand your experience of them. Because as you practice, your experience of them is going to change. And we want to be able to recognize the subtlety of change in how we experience these visitors to the mind. Otherwise, we'll just think of them as, you know, and try to get rid of them, just try to evict them from the mind. So, having heard this much, we can see that at some point we have to recognize them in our own experience. Now, we all know the word fear, we all know the word self pity, we all know the words, but do you know what that experience is in your own heart and mind? and how it's reflected in your body. Can you recognize it? Well, often we don't, because mostly what we're aware of is the narrative of my life that is influenced or conditioned by these states of mind. So when, you know, when, for example, self-pity arises in the mind and we don't see it, we are believing these thoughts or these assumptions, these feelings of like, oh, poor me, I can't blah, 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 blah. Oh, poor me, blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, you, we've all been kind of caught in that state of mind. Oh, poor me, I can't, I can't. I, when I was in Burma, I, I came upon, or I should say, I noticed this visitor to the mind, self-pity. It was, oh, poor me, I can't do this practice. It is just too hard. Oh, poor me, I can't do I'm just so stupid. Oh, poor me, I can't do this practice. I've, I'm too old. Oh, poor me, I can't do this practice. Uh, I did too many drugs. Oh, oh, poor, oh poor me, I, I really can't do this practice. I didn't do enough drugs. <laughs> you know, and, the, and the mind will tell you anything. You know, and, when it's, and, and every time that that came up, oh, poor me, I would stop practicing. I would, I would just, I would believe it. I would just believe the narrative and just kind of, huh, okay, now what? So when anger arises or impatience arise, arises, we also, again, just act it out. Often we just get fretful and anxious and fearful and we just act it out and try to basically just try to get rid of it. And what this first way of beginning to work with these visitors' mind is, you have to recognize, oh, this is self-pity. Oh, this, this is the experience of self-pity. And rather than just believe the narrative of self-pity, we have to kind of extract this awareness that can look at, recognize, name this experience that we're having objectively. When we develop awareness. As I've mentioned, you know, it's remembering to recognize the present moment. And so many of our present moments are just very ordinary, common, recurring, mundane experiences. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. Lifting, placing, lifting, placing. And and 
they're, they're so repetitive and so recurring that we think, this is a waste of time. Give me something more juicy. This is boring. But actually, we train the mind to be continuous on non-threatening experience. Breathing? Hello. Unless you have an asthma problem or you know something like that. Breathing is not usually a problem or, or too traumatic. Sometimes it is, but if we train the mind to be aware of non-threatening, let's say, or safe objects like stepping, breathing, in, seemingly insignificant things, then the momentum of awareness builds up so that when a visitor to the mind arises, it's recognized because the mind is in the habit of recognizing present moment experience. And awareness like that, when it gets some momentum, is always accompanied by another mental state called ujjukata, which means straightness of mind. The mind just sees things as they are. No spin. It means that we're no longer able to deceive ourselves. When self-pity arises, you see it. You, you get it. It's not, you can't pretend that it's justified. You can't rationalize it. You can't pretend that you didn't see it. The mind is so straight and so clear, it just goes, I see it. And you have to deal with it. So, one way of supporting this capacity to recognize these states of mind is to name them. To name them. So that when you when you when you're under the influence of any of them, if you can just step back enough to say, What is this? What is this experience that's being known? And sometimes you have to not think about it so much as you have to really feel into what is this really? Is this frustration or is this disappointment? Is this anxiety? What is this? And but when you when the mind is steady and we're able to recognize the present moment's experience and we've got some momentum to it, we can stay with it. We can be with it. We don't just have to get caught in it and act it out. We can actually step back and see it. So being aware of these mental states in the initial stages means that we begin to own it. We begin to say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. I have to acknowledge, you know, I am really angry. I'm really depressed. I'm really caught in this lustful state of mind. I really want what I want. And that's hard. That's hard to acknowledge how we're actually feeling because we often have a judgment or shame about it. And that gives us a clue as to what we got to do next. Because when we notice that, you know, we can be angry and somebody says, you're angry. No, I'm not. You're really impatient. No, I'm not. You're really caught in this you know, state of mind. No, not me. And, and it's, just, it's just automatic. We, we don't want to be identified as either to ourselves or by another, for sure, with being caught or being exhibiting or displaying or being you know, kind of unkind in that way. So the second way that you might be relating to these visitors to mind is, is kind of, you kind of know they're there. You have some mindful awareness of them and you feel kind of guilty. You feel kind of like ashamed or kind of want to kind of, you still want to get rid of it, but mindfulness won't let you because it's there. Mindfulness is seeing it. And so it's just, okay, Actually, until we learn to relax with this state of mind, we'll be struggling with it. So we may recognize it, but we're struggling. We're trying to get rid of it. We're trying to explain it. We're trying to justify it. We're trying to fix it. At some point we just say, this is the way it is for me, for now. Just relax. Not get so stirred up about it have the courage, actually, the strength of heart to say, this is the way it is for me, for now. You know, and, and we know that it's not going to be forever. 
But even, even with that, it being there at all is unpleasant. So when we, when we acknowledge that this is a conditioned habit, we can see, or when we relax our judgment, we can see this state of mind has arisen due to causes and conditions. It's not me. It's not mine. It's a visitor to the mind, remember? So we bring in some right view to help us relax around our experience that we now have recognized and been be, being mindful of. So we want to acknowledge again that, oh, causes and conditions have given rise to this. One of the causes and conditions is often the strength of habit. You know, when we've been habituated to react in a certain way as a strategy for dealing with unpleasant or pleasant experience, that habit carries a lot of force in our minds, a lot of conditioning. So when we, when they, uh, we should understand also that torments, these torments arise because we're not paying attention. We have unwise attention. We may have low energy. We may be indulging in unskillful, indulging in it with a lot of joy. You know, joy is, is not always wholesome. I mean, joy is, joy is a nice experience, but we can get really joyful about pretty unhealthy things. So what we have to understand is that for this period of time, there has been some unwise attention. Maybe there's some weak energy. Maybe we haven't had a clear understanding of right view of this state of mind. Maybe we didn't have clear enough or resolute enough aspiration to not suffer. Let me check. You know, sometimes we get in a little friction with someone and you got your views and opinions and they got their views and opinions and you're just going at it with, you know, and it's, suffer- it's suffering. You're angry, you're irritated, you're, you're trying to convince the other person, and they're not, you know, and they're not being convinced and they're trying to convince you and the, it's getting heated up. Why is it so difficult to choose to stop suffering? Because to stop suffering would just be, okay, you win. Stop suffering. Why is that so hard? Well, we're attached to our views and opinions. But we're attached to our views and opinions in the face of suffering. So we, we do choose suffering over not suffering quite often. So we have to see that in our in ourselves that I would rather be right than free. What? That's right. A lot of times we choose, we argue to be right instead of free of suffering. Hmm. Okay. It's important to think about that because we do. And when we you see yourself doing it, then you can see just how hard it is to actually let go of your views and opinions. Now, with this much information, we've identified the kinds of visitors to the mind. We've talked about their danger. We've talked about their arising due to causes and conditions. We've got all this information. Now we have to use this information intelligently in our practice. And here's where I want to acknowledge that thoughts in practice are not the enemy. We couldn't practice if we didn't have a lot of thought backing up our instructions, our application of energy, if we didn't have a lot of internal narrative supporting what we're doing, coaching us to do what we're doing, thoughts, we would never practice. And we wouldn't know how to practice correctly. So we're constantly monitoring how we're doing. You know, and you know, if you, if you monitor it too much, you get pretty anxious and stressful striving. If you don't monitor it at all, well, you just get deluded and dull and sleepy. And so there's some level of reminding yourself of what the instructions are and seeing how you, and, and trying it and then seeing how you're doing. And that's all thought. It's all based on thought. So thoughts are not the enemy. We couldn't practice without thinking. So we want to distinguish skillful thinking from, well, unskillful thinking. Because thinking which leads to the torments is usually this, we're unaware of it. And it's just wandering mind. 
and it's or sometimes it's you know hanging on to an unskillful state of mind so the third phase third stage third kind of way that we relate to these states of mind is by understanding that we need to exercise some restraint because our habit is to just act them out you know when you get strong desire for anything you know it it is so compelling and it's so obsessing we we are blinded into thinking the only way i'm ever going to get out of this feeling is to satisfy my desire that's the basic you know wrong view of all obsessive addictive compulsive behavior and yet it's so we've all experienced it a lot i have to get what i want well let me just say i don't think i'm the only one that has lived with this assumption if i could only get what i want then i'd be happy doesn't that sound doesn't that sound right i mean if you could get what you want wouldn't you be happy no <laughs> i mean because we've got tons of what we want just infinite number of things and experiences and events and people and knowledge and stuff we we've, we've got it you happy yet not completely because you know as the buddha acknowledged trying to satisfy desire is like trying to quench your thirst drinking salt water okay to satisfy your desires only fuels it only feeds this visitor it kind of it gives this visitor a long term lease you know in your mind so we have to exercise some restraint we have to understand that see that that's our experience and then understand that oh i need to exercise some restraint or the, i got to put this i got to put the brakes on here because if i just act out my impulsive urges impatience or aversion or desire or lust or whatever impatience then well it's going to it's going to cause some suffering to me and to others and there's going to be some regret and going to be some remorse and there might even be some punishment you know and it could get legal and oh, geez i mean it's true okay so when when the torment is overwhelming and we're 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 tumbling into acting it out then we need to exercise restraint and we can exercise restraint in any number of ways but sila or practicing sila re- recollecting your sila is a, is a powerful antidote to just acting out recognizing your commitment to non-harming through killing stealing sexual misconduct use of intoxicants not telling the truth it's powerful it's not always a sure bet but it's powerful also we can sometimes when we're feeling overwhelmed when in our practice the emotional weight of what we're up against is just so powerful that we're just caught in thinking we're just hanging out in the narrative of it and just spinning a story and we can't get out of the story that's when it's time to turn away from that story we go we go into the dining room and get ourselves a cup of tea set at the window and enjoy that cup of tea noticing what you're seeing what you're hearing what you're feeling in the present sense contact of the moment you're still being mindful because you're knowing seeing when you're seeing you're knowing hearing when you're hearing you're knowing sensations when you're and you're enjoying this tea okay you're still being mindful you're strengthening the momentum of mindful awareness kind of leaving that emotional overload off to the side somewhere so that you can strengthen the mindfulness later you can go back and take a look again and maybe it'll look and it, it will look that emotional drama will look very different we just need some momentary relief because it's got the upper hand some might think that that kind of withdrawal from the present moment is aversion or out of fear but actually it's wisdom that is able to recognize this negative or this unwholesome force is too powerful for the mindfulness awareness at this time so it's wisdom that says back up let go 
Go change, change, the, change your experience. Sometimes we do reflections, you know, practicing loving kindness or metta when overwhelmed by aversion, impatience. Practicing forgiveness if you've been caught in, bla- uh, you know, blaming others for your experience. Or if you have a lot of uh, doubt, you can reflect on stories of teachers or the Buddha or some of the disciples of the Buddha, of their practice or even recollect your own moments of most bright faith as a way of dealing with your own doubt. So there's ways of dealing with what momentarily are overwhelming visitors to the mind. And the Buddha's first injunction for dealing with unwholesome states of mind is avoid those people, places, and activities that cause unwholesome states of mind to arise. Avoid them as much as possible. When it's unavoidable and you have to be in contact with this place, activity, person, whatever, then be mindful and limit the time you're there. This is Buddha's first first guidance. Makes sense. So we want to exercise some restraint. We want to cultivate these other ways of recognizing first overwhelming emotional or an overwhelming visitor to the mind, and knowing that restraint is necessary, or we'll just act it out. The, sometimes when we are confronted by these visitors to the mind, we have this assumption, it's actually a wrong view, and it's usually an unexamined assumption, that I have to get rid of this before I can continue practice. I got to get rid of this so that I can have good practice. You know, sloth and torpor. I got to get rid of this before I can really practice. Or doubt. I got to answer my. I, I mean, I can't practice if if I got doubt in the mind. And so we are we are with that assumption or with that belief, we are letting the visitor become an obstacle to practice. But actually. That's a wrong understanding because, as I mentioned, these visitors arise due to causes and conditions and awareness can recognize them. So we, we sometimes have to confront that assumption and reframe our understanding. Just cognitively go in there and say, this assumption, this, this belief I have is wrong. Okay. Th- Instead of, i got to get rid of this before I can get on with practice or in order to have good practice. Actually, this state of mind that is so compelling or so habitual is the very place to establish awareness that you're not yet able to. This is your edge. This is your cutting edge. When this has arisen and you've been able to recognize it and you're not acting it out, this is the very place. Stay there. But you need to you need to reframe your misunderstanding or you'll just stay there but try to get rid of it. So this experience of these visitors that aren't overwhelming but they're nagging, let's call it that much, this is the very place. Because we're not willing, we haven't been willing to stay with it. We haven't been willing to learn from it. We haven't been able to endure it, if you will. And so we've always just pushed it away or minimized it or denied it, avoided it, acted it out, anything to kind of get rid of it. But practice is just the opposite. Rather than getting rid of it, I don't want to say welcome it. That's a little too new age. But... um, you know, but at least acknowledge it. Be willing to just say, here it is. Okay, a visitor has arrived at the door. I don't have to let him in, but I can't slam the door in their face either. Okay, I'm just going to have to be here with it. So reframing our understanding is, rather than seeing them as an obstacle to practice, to see them as an opportunity to develop awareness of something you don't yet know about.
Utejaniya, he says, try to recognize that these torments are simply torments. They're not your torment. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you're only increasing their strength. The wandering mind is not a problem. It's your attitude of aversion that it should not be wandering. That's the problem. The object isn't really important. How you observe or view it is. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting or hoping for good experience rather than being willing and trying to work with these torments. Remember when you first saw the IMS newsletter announcing that there was going to be a retreat with Carol and Alexis and Franz and Steve and you look down through the thing and it's great, it's a good time for you and you said, great, a week, you bury in the spring, it'll be nice and I can come and just kind of chill out, calm down, open up. It's so lovely there. You know, it's just wonderful. It's the good food too and it's nice weather and I've heard, about, I've heard good things about these teachers. I'm not sure yet, but maybe. Uh, it'll be like a vacation. Are we there yet? <laughs> I mean, I mean, don't, I mean we, we, come, we often come because we remember how it was on the last day of the last retreat. <laughs> it was really good. You know, we forget the first six days is just working with these torments. You know, so as, as Sider acknowledged, we should, we, it would be better off if we said, oh great, a week at IMS. Seven days of confronting torments in the mind. Yeah, I'm up for that. Sounds kind of absurd, but that's really what's happening. So let's, okay. So, <laughs> as I also goes on to say, as long as you are aware of these torments, as long as you're aware of them, you're doing well. Just the opposite of what we think. I've been besieged by sloth and torpor and anxiety and lust all day. Great! <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it takes a little reframing to kind of come to that, right? Mostly we say, wow, it was a bad day. I hope it's better tomorrow, like I don't have any of those things. Then you just fall asleep. Okay. So, so now we've, we've recognized these states of mind. We're able to uh, relax around our self-judgment about them and our shame of feeling them or exhibiting them or getting caught in them. And we've kind of exercised some restraint. We're not acting them out. We're kind of we're, we're, we're coaching ourselves to be willing to kind of deal with them. And then we reframe our understanding. This is not an obstacle. This is actually an opportunity. The strength of awareness that can see these stages or these phases of working with uh, these visitors to mind is by then stable enough to actually observe them. Now, when I say observe these states of mind, it sounds like I'm saying, look at them with your eyes, see them, observe them. But that's not it at all. It's more that we want to experience them willingly and knowingly. We want to willingly, not out of resistance and frustration and resignation, but willingly just say, right, here it is, a visitor to mine. What is it? What is this visitor to mine? What is going on here? Welcome it in that sense. Be willing to engage it. Be willing to try to feel your way into what does this state of mind feel like in the heart, in the body? What kind of stories, what kind of narrative does it throw up in your mind? So as we pay attention to this unpleasant, unsatisfying, maybe shameful uh, state of mind, we're going to open to it. I'll tell you, it's going to be really unpleasant. It's, it's unpleasant. But we, you know, really we have to encourage ourselves to, you know, it's unpleasant anyway. We might as well be there for it. Because if you're willing to feel that unpleasantness, you can learn something about it. So 
learning how to <coughs> excuse me learning how to feel into so that you can taste the nature of these states of mind awareness allows us to become intimate with everything that's going on in our life not just kind of cruising along the surface but deeply feeling what's going on in every moment so that when pride arises and you're kind of caught in this inflated egotistical view of yourself happens occasionally um, you can say wow this is the nature of pride this is what it feels like in the body this is what it's doing to the mind or this is the nature of despair wow this is what despair is like or impatience I mean we've all experienced these states of mind but what can you actually say about your experience of them objectively well mostly we just know the story about them we know the story of our fear the story of our pride the story of and we don't know the state of mind itself the actual flavor the feeling the what's called the sabhava, its unique nature, because they're all different. They all have their own fingerprint, if you will. They all have their own feeling print, if you will. So Sayadaw again says, use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are a natural phenomena. They're not your torment. Everyone experiences them. If there is anger in the mind, don't think more about what is making you angry. Instead, notice there is anger and get interested in it. There is anger. This is anger. This, not, what is, this is the nature of anger. What is that like? Arouse awareness like this continually. In this way, you don't work at being angry. You work at being continuously aware. You see the difference? When you think about the story of your anger, it goes on forever. When you allow yourself to be aware of the experience of anger, you'll come to know it intimately. Do not try to avoid objects or experiences. Instead, try to avoid getting entangled in these torments. So we're not trying to avoid anything. We're not trying to grasp anything. We're not trying to get some particular thing. We're just taking whatever arises in each moment and seeing if we can recognize it, be with it, feel our way into it, and not get entangled in it. When we can, or as we do, as we learn how to do that, something happens. We gain insight. We gain knowledge. Just by observing, just by observing, not because we're trying to figure it out, we're not trying to explain it, we're not trying to confirm what we read in the book. We're actually observing something enough to know this is the way it is. Oh, that's the way it is. And what we begin to recognize in this practice of Vipassana is what are called the three universal characteristics. Now, as I mentioned, each of these visitors has their own flavor, their own unique uniqueness, and we experience that. And as we get familiar with that flavor of, of all of these mental states, we begin to understand something. They're all really unsatisfactory. They really are, they're, they're painful, they're changeable, they're oppressive, we suffer, it, they're tormenting. We can't, we can't pretend otherwise anymore. We might think pride's really good. We might think desire's really good, too. We might think, self-righteously, that your anger is justified. But now we know. This is torment. This is suffering. This is not satisfactory. This is the insight into the dukkha characteristic. We also see that Try as we might, we can't keep these states of mind from arising. They arise. They have their, a life of their own, we could say. They have their own causes and conditions. And when those causes and conditions are there, they arise. They're knocking at the door. We have to deal with them. So, 
this is the uh, anatta characteristic. It's, it's, we see how impersonal, how mm, conditioned, how evanescent or ephemeral these experiences are. They, they're not very substantial, but like thoughts, they're very powerful. They arise due to causes and conditions. It's like a rainbow in the sky. You know, a rainbow in the sky is this colorful appearance, isn't it? And it looks like there's something there. But it's a colorful appearance due to causes and conditions. Moisture in the air, the angle of the sun, viewed from a certain angle with eyes that actually work. And you see a rainbow. You can recognize this appearance, this colorful appearance. But if you understand that it's due to conditions and causes that are very specific to it, you know that there's really no such thing as a rainbow. I mean, you cannot package up a rainbow and send it to anybody. I mean, it's just, it's just this evanescent, transparent, conditioned, colorful appearance that has no substance. So do these visitors to the mind, just like that. Colorful appearance, due to causes and conditions, they have no substance. If we don't see that, we give them substance, and then they become a heavy burden to kind of live with. So we understand these states of mind just like that. They just come due to causes and conditions. You don't have to own them. You don't have to take them on as mine. They're not going to last forever. And that's the third insight. They come, and if you're willing to actually be there with them, to feel into them, to stay right there, as long as they're there, they won't be there for long. They just pass away. They dissolve. They disappear. They fade away. They go away. You don't it's not out of aversion. You haven't pushed them away. You haven't done anything to get rid of them. You've been willing and interested to just stay there and learn about them. They can't stand that kind of wise attention. They can't. You know, one of the causes for the arising of these visitors to the mind is unwise attention. And as soon as you're willing to observe them with wise attention, you've, re- you've, you've, you've kind of undermined their conditions that give rise to them. So really it's developing this understanding, this right view, and the courage, and the continuity to say, I can look at this, I can be with this, I can, I can feel into this, and you'll see, it doesn't last. That knowledge that it is impermanent, you can read in a book, but it doesn't touch the depth of attachment in your heart. We still are attached to the wrong view that I'm a this you know angry person, I'm an impatient person, I'm a needy person, I'm a whatever, depressed person. That belief is still firmly attached to because we haven't seen that it's impermanent. Really, up close and personal. When we do and we see it again and again and again, this this is insubstantial. It's so evanescent, it's so fleeting, it's like what's the problem? then the mind is ready for freedom. Then the mind is ready to be free of that visitor to the mind. Conditions still arise that might precipitate or might kick up or might congeal around this visitor arriving at the mind door, but you don't believe it. You don't take it in. You don't, you don't have to entertain it, even for a minute, even for a second, because you see, you understand now it's unsa- it really is unsatisfactory. It really is impersonal, conditional, evanescent, nothing. Nothingness. And it doesn't last. These knowledges can only be gained through this practice. You can read about them. I can talk about them. You can hear about them. But they don't get very far in the mind. Only through this practice, when you confront, when you follow these ways of dealing with these states of mind, will you know for yourself, empirically, confirm for yourself, this is true, what the Buddha said is true. We don't have to suffer with these visitors to the mind. As long as you're aware of these torments, you're doing well. 
in order to understand them, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Always remember that it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. And when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Let's sit for a moment and let the words settle in. The mind by nature is radiant and pure. It's shiny. It is because of visiting forces known as torments that we suffer. But always remember that it's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. And when you're continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.